Dusi is the country's first ever mental health minister. The national MP has also had lived experience of anxiety and depression as a younger man and went on to train and work in the sector both here and in the UK. He takes on the portfolio as demand for mental health services continues to grow. Our youth suicide rate is the second worst in the developed world and access to care for many is very limited. Couple this with a sector crying out for workforce. Psychiatrists, psychologists, nurses, counsellors and just about every other category of allied staff. And yet, since 2019, the previous government poured $2 billion into mental health. So how is the new minister going to tackle the myriad challenges before him? Kia ora. Welcome. Great to have you here. Good morning. Thank you for the opportunity to be here. You lobbied the former National Health Minister, Bill English. It's going back a ways. Huh? For a standalone yes. health minister. Yeah. You're now it. Why is it needed? Yeah, look, hey, does that feel some time ago now? Um, But the reality was, um, I was always of the view early on um, that mental health was a poor second cousin to physical health, and I saw that through my own professional career in mental health. And I just think, irrespective of the colour of a health minister, whatever government, they're going to have so much on their plate. And I was always of the view that mental health would, would slip off. And I thought it was about time that we had someone dedicated that focused on the issues, uh, had uh, the ability to think about uh, mental health in some detail. And when I had looked around the world, some countries had moved to the model of a separate mental health ministry. I didn't think uh, we needed another ministry. And in fact, those countries, it didn't really look as though it worked. I was really impressed with what Australia did under Scott Morrison. He appointed at a federal level uh, their first mental health minister. And it, it's called a standalone mental health minister. And the reason being is it's located within health, but it acknowledges that mental health is wider than just health. So what are we doing about better mental health in uh, the corrections department, within police, within education, within um, social services and housing? So there's a real ability to go across the government departments and really join it up to make a coherent all-of-government strategy. Where does your budget sit, though? So I'm going to have responsibility for the ring fence mental health and addiction funding that is about two and a half billion dollars a year and then I will be working in partnership with the ministers in the uh, other government departments so I've already identified say police for example we're looking at how we look at the co-response service so I'll be working in partnership with those um, uh, relevant ministers and it's also a role of advocacy where I can go to those ministers and say you know what are we doing in the space and can we do better and can I help support a better outcome in that space too, especially around the cabinet table? The co-response services where police would have a mental health practitioner with them when they go to what is frequently the main call out for them these days, uh, an incident with a mental health component? Yeah, look, the reality is, and I think most people would agree, that when you call 111 with a, um, a physical health crisis, you get a health response. When you call 111 with a mental health crisis, you get a criminal justice response, the police. Quite often, uh, they would admit they're not the best emergency service to go out either. So what we're looking at is um, I think we even need to go um, upstream one step further to the dispatch centre. 
you know, is it time to have a fourth option where you call up and it says police, fire, ambulance, mental health? So to start understanding what are the needs of that person who's calling up in mental distress a lot earlier, and then what is the best response? So if there is a risk to that individual and others, maybe it is primarily a police response. But actually, if there's lesser risk, is it a co-response where the police and mental health professionals go out? Or maybe just the mental health professionals go out. And then the next step is, I think we need to think about where we take that person. Because taking someone in crisis or distress to an emergency department that's brightly lit, uh, noisy, a lot of people around, is not always the best place as well. So there's actually going to be a piece of work, what I call, along that whole continuum of crisis, because I think we do it very poorly in New Zealand. Do we have a mental health crisis service, though? Or is that St John's? Well, you know, do, the, do we have a workforce at, to go out with the police or instead of the police? Yeah, well, at, at the moment, the mental health crisis service is by default the police. And if you look at the Metropolitan Police in the United Kingdom, they actually issued an instruction recently to say they will not now go to mental health call-outs because of the... Uh, the um, constraint it's putting on their resources. So thankfully we're not in that position in New Zealand, but we've got to acknowledge, and I hear with uh, the police leadership in my area in Canterbury, they say 50% of their time is non-core business, and a high part of that is mental health distress call-outs. But what I see is a workforce that perhaps doesn't exist, because if it's the mental health workforce already working in the acute end, they're understaffed, they're under pressure. If it's the ambulance service, they probably are already doing some of this work themselves. So do we need a new workforce if this heavy police workload is to be picked up elsewhere? Well, that's the model we need to look at. So at the moment, uh, there's been some pilots. There was one actually here in Wellington. Uh, I've read the um, academic evaluation of that pilot. Uh, It was quite successful because... There's actually a bit of politics to this. It goes back to Bill English, which he referenced. In 2017, as the then Prime Minister, announcing a $100 million uh, mental health social investment programme, and a key component of that was $8 million to start the co-response service. The first thing the last government did in early 2018, after promising to transform the mental health system, is cancelled that project and reallocated the funding out of mental health. So police and mental health services have been calling for this for a long time, and it needs to be done. What what you are raising is actually probably one of the key issues in mental health at the moment, the mental health workforce crisis. Yeah, it's a key issue, and, and just to and, every, well, every the, public service well, at the that, moment. Well, that's, that's a fair point, general. but when yeah. you look at the history of what the last government tried to do in mental health, the reason it didn't work is because they didn't understand the structural issues. Okay, can is we it... just pause and look at that? Okay. Because what they did do was put an eye-watering, it seemed to be, figure into mental health that everyone thought would be a game-changer and ought to have been. Um, look, we heard from the former minister, and I don't want to make this all about the previous government, we heard from the former minister who seemed frustrated himself yes. at what it took to get things done. Yes. But you just referenced the $2.5 billion ref- ring-fenced for mental health. Yes. Is that in the budget the incoming government has inherited? And what is its future? Yeah, so that is the current baseline for mental health and addiction services. And so, as you said, the, the previous government announced $1.9 billion, which 
actually, to be frank, was a bit of a fudge, right? Because most Kiwis interpreted that there was 1.9 billion going into mental health and addiction services. When you actually look at the funding, there was a large chunk of that went into the state abuse inquiry. A large chunk of that went into housing, other areas. Look, all yeah, but you just referenced they should be part of the picture. No, but I, I know, health. but they were very well intending yep. programs. I'm not disagreeing with that. Yep. But actually, when you dig into the numbers, there was only $800 million for uh, mental health services over a four-year period. You're down to $200 million. Right. And all I'm trying to articulate is that expectations were raised, and in the end, it was a smaller amount of money. And a minister can very easy make announcements of money. And I could do Trust that me, quickly. Trust me, governments do it. I've but, watched politics but, long but, enough for Good. Me. But the, okay. in, in mental health... If you do not have the workforce to open those new services, they're never going to eventuate, okay. and that's what happened. We'll come to workforce, which is a massive challenge in all of health, and particularly in mental health. But that ring fence baseline, will it continue? Of course it will, and it will increase year on year. And what I am very keen to do is now the responsible minister who has the ability to deep dive, and in fact that's exactly what I'm doing at the moment, is go through that $2.5 million and understand utilisation rates, which basically is what return are we getting on that money, understand the prioritisation of it, and is there ability to do things better with that baseline what, as well as what extra we what can do. What are the aspects of that programme that you've got your eyes on? Let me give one example. Will you retain the mental health coaches brought into primary practice that that package included? Yeah, look, so I'm, I'm looking at the Access and Choice programme, which you're referencing. Uh, I was in the United Kingdom working for the NHS when that was rolled out. Slightly different model we've taken in New Zealand, which I think impacts on utilisation. I don't think it's good enough to have someone there only seeing three people a day, which sometimes the data shows. So broadly, I'm supportive of uh, more early intervention, which is the primary mental health uh, programme you're, you're referencing. But I think actually it could probably deliver a lot more, and that's what I'll be focused what on. What are the other aspects of the package that you are scrutinising? Well, just the whole um, how integrated it is, because at the moment, sometimes it feels like uh, it's not joined up with um, secondary services. Also, there is um, parts of the country that seems uh, they're not covered by this program as well. And again, understanding the constraints about the workforce program. But primarily, when you look at the government's mental health inquiry in 2018, it did highlight and it states in about early page three or four that currently we deliver services to about six or seven percent of the population. Potentially that might need to go to a greater number. And the area missing out was mild to moderate, which is what the Access and Choice program is delivering. I want to come back to that issue. The structural issues you reference, what are they? Well, a key component of the structural issue is workforce. So, as I was saying, very easy to announce money for this, money for that. Look at Budget 2022, $100 million announced in mental health, pretty much nothing out the door yet. And the point being, and you raised it with the co-response service, is that when you are announcing money, actually in mental health, the biggest barrier to timely mental health and addiction support in New Zealand is the mental health workforce crisis. We can't open services. I, in, in my patch in Canterbury, last year, an inpatient unit closed down because they had an over 50% vacancy rate. 
I was at Wellington Community Adolescent Services the other week. They've got a 50% vacancy rate. So the point being is that they should, my view is that the previous government should have started with the workforce pipeline and we would be in a very different position today. Okay. So that's why we're going to focus on that pipeline. Again, workforce pipelines are a 20-year issue for this country in health. However, to your point, psychiatry vacancies uh, in Health New Zealand increased by 179% in the last two years, psychology by 104% and mental health nursing about 124%. That's in the last two years. Yes. Figures you'll concur with. Yes, I think I probably published you those probably figures. You probably published yeah. The issue is, in a competitive international medical workforce market where we are struggling on every front going to compete... In professions that take six, seven, eight, nine years to qualify in, in some instances, where are you going to get this workforce and how? Yeah, and a very good question. I'd say there's three areas. The first thing we need to do is obviously retention and understand why people are leaving the profession. Well, my, working my, conditions and pay yeah. and, and uh, management uh, capability or otherwise, yeah. there's three. And, and, and a key component I'm hearing is because of the growing vacancy rate, people of are covering course. vacant roles, burn out and they leave. So it's self-fulfilling. The, the, the second thing I'd say is around creating that pipeline. Quite rightly, we should train our own. And I agree when you look at the totality of a, um, a clinical psychologist, maybe six years, but I'd actually challenge that and say something. What have I said to you it would only take two years to train a clinical psychologist? Well, what are you going to and, do? Are you going and, to retrain people to quote the health minister who are driving Uber at the moment, or what are you doing? Well, well why I propose that is actually when you go through each discipline, the, the, the issues are different. So in psychology... We have enough uh, people graduating in undergraduate psychology, right? The problem is when they go to do that two-year clinical internship to graduate, there's very few places. So the funnel is big enough, but the constraint is the placement. What will you do about it? So we stood on a policy of doubling the number of psychology uh, Clinical placements? Yeah, of the placements. And again, this is the strength of this role, is that the actual constraint is outside of health, it's actually within tertiary education. I'm actually meeting with some universities this Friday specifically about this issue. And if we can open up that constraint, we will see more psychologists in, in two years. So my point being is we've got to get to the detail of every discipline. Every discipline is different. If you look at nursing, there's enough nurses going through. The problem with nursing is the attrition rate. They're dropping out. And, and it's more about financial support to keep them in that pipeline. Okay, wonderful idea to double the number of uh, clinical positions. What about the supervision, the capability and the performance of some of our universities in those departments? Yeah, so what we're proposing is um, clinical internship hubs within Health New Zealand. You talk about the retention So they issues. don't go through the university route? They, they do, but for their placement they will be put in hubs. And the reason why this has a double value is part of the retention issue is giving existing staff um, clinical leadership pathways, and so they will go into the supervisory and the clinical oversight. So this this uh, internship hub is, model is working at the moment, and we're going to expand it within uh, Health New Zealand. And then just, oh, I wanted to pick up on the point around Can I make um, one more point on this? Okay, Your sure. burnout rates, particularly in the public sector, which pertain 
absolutely to what happens to those interns, the quality of their supervision, uh, the pressure they come under because they're part of the constraints in various parts of the institutions they're working for. Um, those burnout rates see a preposterous proportion of uh, new clinical psychologists move into private practice within three years. They are lost to the public system. So mm. you have got this challenge at every part. I'm not you know, dismissing your solutions, but at every part of the chain there is stress and pressure. Yeah, I don't, I don't disagree with that. I think partly the issue, though, I, I, I see there's an added complexity, is that when you look at the total mental health system which is bigger than just the publicly funded mental health system. You hear this anecdata where someone says, I went to go publicly, uh, I, I couldn't get seen, and then thankfully I had some personal resource, so I went into the private um, sector and I was able to be seen a lot quicker. And what happens now is the calibration is that there's actually an incentivization, I think, for people to shift into the private sector uh, because of the demand, and part of that is we need to recalibrate that we ensure that uh, the publicly funded mental health system is providing that level the, of access. The, the incentive is also to get away from burnout and poor management. Oh, I'm, I agree with that as well. Yeah. Uh, okay, on the question of means and funds, let, let's just look at some of the initiatives that um, people are attempting and coming up against the block of you know, join the queue to put in your proposal to wait forever for funding that may go somewhere else. When you look at this uh, initiative, for example, the Wellington Charity, which has just set up a depression recovery centre for people suffering mild to moderate depression, they've not had any traction with Tofota Ora in, in getting funding, and they won't survive, they say, without public funding. Are you prepared to cut through some yes. of the red tape for an initiative like that? Yeah, well, I can't speak specifically to that issue because I haven't seen the proposal. But if I think you, you visited it, it, you opened it. No, no, I, I haven't visited it or, right. or, or opened it. Okay. Um, so, um, but let's be very clear as an example of what we will do. We have agreed to, Gumboot, to fund Gumboot Friday, $6 million a year, because what we want to do is to get more money out of the front line, uh, sorry, out of Wellington to the front line. So when I travel the country, uh, there's a lot of great work that's been done by community services uh, and NGOs who I think if we can get that funding to them, they can do and continue doing the great work. Yeah, I think, you, I think you may have met with the founder. I appreciate that it's different to having seen the proposal. And I'm sure there is... Uh, an appropriate way to go about seeking funding. My point is the bureaucracy, it seems sometimes, gets in the way of some initiatives that seem to be proving their value. For yes. example, another guest, the mental health platform Clearhead, reaching some 180,000 New Zealanders through some of the country's biggest workplaces, utilising um, employee schemes, right? Now, I'm sure... For that, there'll be another one, there'll be another one, there'll be another one. But where initiatives are proving yes. results yes. and still come to us and say, we cannot get anywhere with Tafota Aura, yes. is that fine? Is that appropriate? Or are there ways of speeding up the process or doing things differently? So what we've announced uh, under the coalition document is something that I put a lot of thought into based on that issue. It's called the Mental Health Innovation Fund 
where organisations like that can apply to, uh, that can demonstrate they're actually making a difference. Uh, they can scale up with funding and they have the workforce available. And the premise of this is that actually, and going back to that all-of-system approach, is that we quite rightly should have a high-quality, publicly-funded mental health system. But actually, when you look at the workforce across the system, there is capacity in other parts of the system. So if actually we can shift some of the demand, if you think about the Mental Health Innovation Fund or the funding of Gumboot Friday, that will actually take some of the demand off the publicly funded mental health system so people who need it can be seen more timely. So that's exactly why we set that fund up for. Matt Ducey, our guest, the new Minister for Mental Health, the country's first Minister for Mental Health. You're listening to Nine to Noon. It's 27 minutes past nine. You are also... um, uh, actually just the feedback piling in, that the question of addiction services, there's mental health yeah. and there's addiction services there is frequently but not necessarily overlap. And addiction services, I've lost count of the number of years we have been reporting on the challenges of people getting anything like timely treatment, including within the prison system. Here you are talking about the whole of government system again. What will it take? Is it funding? Is it staff? What, if anything, will be different about the endeavours of previous governments for, what, 20-plus years? Around addictions? Yes. Yeah. So um, uh, if we think that mental health is a poor second cousin to physical health, well, you can go one step further, and addictions has always been the poor cousin uh, to both of them. And um, for me, um, look, I started across the road from here. Welltech used to be across the road here on the terrace long time ago. It's where I studied in counselling psychology. My first placement was out in Lower Hutt with Pauline Gardner, a, a former minister at the time, not that I knew her through a political connection, but she had set up a drug and alcohol service for, for young people. I did my first placement there, and that was my first experience of working in those services, and I went on to work in some addiction services in the UK when I worked for the NHS. So I, I'm acutely aware of the pressures of addiction services and also the window of opportunity because quite often that group can be quite resistant to change, but when they make the decision, you can't be telling them to wait for three months before a spot comes up. And I think for me that is the disconnect and always been the disconnect, that when someone who is in that lifestyle makes a decision to change, they're not going to wait in an orderly queue. We actually need the ability for them to access some form of support to reinforce the change. And that's something that I'll be looking at as well. Yep, it'll be partly a a funding issue. It'll be uh, how that service has been delivered around engagement and a workforce issue um, as well. But uh, what I also would say too is an area I want to focus on is actually the overlap where you get these dual diagnosis patients where mental health services say we can't work with them because of the drug and alcohol use and the drug and alcohol services say we can't work with them because of the mental health uh, issues. So, Are they physically yeah. in different, very different spaces often? Yeah. Like a long way away from each other? Often. Yeah, yeah. Quite, 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 they can be, and this is where I, I, there can be uh, a, a gap where people like that can fall between and I think we need to be a lot joined up. The previous mental health inquiry you referenced uh, was fairly damning of multiple governments not dealing yeah. with the preventative end, yes. catching things at an early stage. 
we seem to be in a whole new era of anxiety, starting with our uh, some of our very young school children. Any teacher will tell you a significant proportion of their class has genuine anxiety challenges. Uh, and then that goes through into high school and out into the workforce, university, wherever. What can be done? What are your plans for the ambulance at the top of the cliff rather than the bottom? Yeah. So when you look at my priorities, one is to increase access to timely support in New Zealand. Uh, and these aren't in, in set order, but uh, two is workforce. And the third is prevention and early intervention. And so look... The reality is we need to ensure that we um, treat mental illness a lot better, but equally, in parallel to that, we need to be making sure that we promote mental well-being because, of course, they're connected. And the more we can increase well-being and resilience, I'd like to think the less are going to arrive in crisis uh, and distress. Young people, I think, uh, are leading this debate at the moment. They're highly articulate about mental health, uh, they have a vocabulary I or others older never had. They face this stigma. They are asking for us. I, I think they're driving this debate. And it occurs to me that we have the ability now uh, to uh, deliver better mental health education uh, and skills training in schools. To, it's about a toolkit to equip kids. And one final point I'd make on that is you read these surveys now, right, and you'll you read an article and it says... 80% of university students uh, are suffering from anxiety uh, or anxious. And I think we've got to watch that it's a normal um, state, anxiety, to a point. You know, you might have left home for the first time to go to university, financial pressures, maybe drinking a bit too much, uh, relationship, academic attainment levels. The real question is, how many of that 80%, their anxiety is negatively impacting on their life? And if we had given them a skill set earlier on that they learnt about anxiety and were able to manage it, then they could have yeah. potentially alleviated that. So Look, there's an absolute agreed, focus on but that. But when, when you talk to parents whose children won't go to school, primary school children won't go to school, refuse to go to school, I know what you're going to say to that, but it, it, we are not talking about stubbornness here. We are talking about kids who have something going on that doesn't matter. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I have had parents emailing in saying, my 16-year-old just will not get out of bed and go to school. Yes. And it yes. seems to be a post-pandemic yes. issue. Yeah. Now, where does that parent go? And, and, and look, we've got to be very clear. In that position, I'm not advocating for better mental health education in the school. Because that is not the right response. But is there a service that, in the school that with the right qualifications and to deal with those that, issues, rather than the classroom teacher and the parent? Well, I, I I agree, and that's where it needs to be joined up around the prevention that we're promoting um, better mental health education, uh, and then you move to the next level where for those who might need some targeted support. So, what does that look like? Is that the school counsellor? Is it the school referring into a platform like Gumboot Friday, which has capacity to see people within uh, one to two days? Or is that person actually needing a specialist service? And if you look at the Manayake service that's been rolled out, uh, that's integrating specialist service in schools. So, so actually it is a continuum. You've got the position that you sought all those years ago. Um, how will you... Mark your own performance. How do you expect others to in delivering results? Yeah, it's a very good question because, um, look, I, I, I'm the sort of character um, that I'm very clear. 
I haven't done anything. Getting a job means nothing. Um, it's about what you use the position for. It might sound a bit high level, but I think one of the successes is that when I move on or this government moves on, successive governments after me say, actually, that role was of value and we will continue the, men- the, the, the role for um, Minister for Mental Health. That clearly, I think, decision will be based on what I achieve over the next three years. And those three areas uh, of access, workforce uh, and prevention and early intervention, I'll be clearly outlining uh, my expectations of what I want to achieve in those areas and how I'll be measured. Thank you, Matt Ducey, the Minister for Mental Health.